everyone who thirst, come to the waters, and you that have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen, incline your ear and come to me. Listen so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord, that he may have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This is the word of the Lord. Dr. Paul Henson, in his commentary on this passage, says, Without a doubt, chapter 55 marks the last words of Second Isaiah that we have. Rabbi Gunter Plout, in his commentary on this chapter, says the same, but adds this much. You recall, he said, that the first chapters of Isaiah were written by a prophet in the 8th century who saw the devastation the Assyrians were wreaking on the ten northern tribes and was begging the southern tribes of Judah to reform and get right with their God. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. And in 587, 586, the dreaded Babylonians came, laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, and then burned and destroyed it when the walls were breached. The second Isaiah begins with chapter 40 a very different person whose name we do not know, whose work got affixed to that of the first Isaiah, but it begins with the words of the tenor soloist and Handel's Messiah. Comfort, comfort ye, my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her her warfare is ended. And that author completes his work in chapter 55. Rabbi Gunter Plout said, I believe at least 50 long years have passed and a greater than the king of Babylon has arisen, King Darius of Persia. And he has rounded his armies, trained them thoroughly, and they are at the very walls of the city of Babylon. This ancient prophet believes the end is close. The end of their terrible stay in Babylon and the opportunity to go home. Let's take a look. It begins with the words, Ho, all you who are thirsty and hungry. Every scholar I read said, this is the language of a street vendor. We don't have street vendors in Tulsa. Think Tulsa State Fair. Every year we go with our little grandchildren out to see the Tulsa State Fair and we see the animals in the birthing center out there and then they want to walk down that midway. And here the barkers are active. Over here, over here, toss a ring around the neck of a Coke bottle. Here, just one of these little softballs into the basket. Over here, coins in a plate and win goldfish. Over here, if you're hungry and thirsty. 1988, just before Jason's senior year in high school and Trey's senior year at SMU, we decided to take our vacation behind the Soviet Union Iron Curtain. We flew to Frankfurt, went to Berlin, 
It took us an hour and a half to get through Checkpoint Charlie and Potsdamer Platz, and we spent the next three weeks in East Germany, Hungary, Poland, Czechoslovakia. We did not become experts on what life was like under communism, but we saw some very interesting things. We saw people in lines completely around a block trying to get into a tiny little grocery store whose shelves were bare, hoping maybe they would get a head of lettuce or three little tomatoes. So I was interested when I saw a book written by Olga Brustian, who grew up in the Soviet Union and has written a book called The Line. She remembers being a girl and seeing those long lines. When she was a teenager, she said, she stood in a number of those lines. Often they were so long, she said, that one got in line and asked the person in front, uh, what are they selling? And that person didn't know. And he or she would ask the one in front, and that would ask the one in front, and none of them seemed to know. They saw a line, and they got in it. It was too far to go all the way up and ask. By the time you got back, 50 more people would be ahead of you. She said she had actually stood in lines like that that would go all the way to closing time, and people would go home and come back and form the line the next morning. So she's written a novel called The Line. I want you to hear this one paragraph. A young woman joins the line, maybe Olga, when she was a teenager. And she asks an older man standing in front of her, what are they selling? And he asks, what would you like? And she said, beg your pardon? And he said, if they're selling exactly what you want, what would it be? And she learned something that day. What do you want more than anything else in the world? If you could buy, if you could have, what would that be? Lent is about that question. What makes you hungry? What makes you thirsty? What would it take to satisfy you. Number two, I underline this wonderful verse. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast chesed is the word here. It is the word used more than any other in all 39 scrolls of the Hebrew scriptures to tell you the very nature of God. It is usually translated for us into English as steadfast or never-failing love. I will make with you. I will make with you this covenant. Many of you remember when Dr. John Buchanan was our Barton Clinton Gordy presenter. I enjoyed him very much. Very capable preacher and a warm and winsome fellow. I discovered he and I were the same age. We'd been in seminary at the same time, not the same seminary. He's a Presbyterian. I'm Methodist. He is pastor of the 4th Presbyterian Church in Chicago, one of the most beautiful churches in America. It's on that famous million-dollar mile that, that, that Oprah Winfrey talks about. A lot of wealthy people live along that 
famous mile shop along that famous mile. Dr. Buchanan says, but there are a lot of poor people who come by his church looking for help as well. He's been pastor there for years and years and then decided to take on another responsibility along with being pastor at Fourth Presbyterian. He's the editor now of Christian Century Magazine. And so I get to read more of John's stuff than I did before. He writes editorials from time to time in Christian Century. And recently he was writing about an experience he had when he was in seminary. And Dr. Rule Howe came to his seminary. We Methodists had to read him when I was in seminary. Rule Howe, an Episcopal priest who was writing about something nobody else was calling at that time, spiritual formation. Spiritual formation. Dr. Buchanan said, I could hardly wait. I'd read this fellow's books. Here he was at my seminary taking small groups of students in different sessions over a three-day period. When my turn came, I rushed into the room, and he handed me a piece of paper, pretty large, and some crayons. And I thought, oh, no, not one of those. We clergy have to go to those kind of meetings from time to time. When I was elected first clergy delegate to General Conference, that put me on the Episcopal Committee for the South Central Jurisdiction, which meant that for four years I served with the first clergy and first laity elected from the different annual conferences in this uh, 10 annual conference area. If anything should happen to one of the bishops during that time, we would have to determine how that person would be replaced. And then when we came to the next election, we elected four at the end of that four-year term, uh, where should the four new bishops go, and where would we reallocate uh, the, the bishops who had already been serving? At our very first meeting, Mount Sequoia, this group came. The chair from Missouri, he had invited a psychologist from Dallas to come to Mount Sequoia and help us bond. Okay. So we had dinner, and we got to the meeting room, 20 of us, and she dumped a big shopping bag out in the middle of the table, stuff she had gathered up around her house. And you were supposed to walk up to the table and pick out an object and wait your turn to tell people why you chose the pine cone over the kumquat. You know, so I don't like those games either. Well, John Buchanan said, we had a piece of paper and we had crayons, and I waited to hear what this man was going to tell us to do, and he said... I want you all to draw the floor plan of the first house you remember living in. Take your time. John said, I was remembering that small house where I was a boy. Oh, yes. We had a living room. It wasn't very big, and nobody ever went in there except me. That's where I practiced my trumpet. We had a den. It was smaller but it's where we spent most of our time. No television, he said. When I was a little boy, we had an old Philco radio that sat on the table. Kitchen. I remember that. Kitchen, important room of the house. When I'd get home from school, my mother would usually already be in there starting dinner. I could talk to her more right then while she was working. She'd talk to me, listen to me. After dinner, I remember... There was a box I stepped up on. I dried dishes she had just washed. Got to be with my mother. Special. Well, I drew the floor plan of this house and waited. And now Dr. Howe said, I want you to draw in the furniture 
in each room. What was in each room? Dr. Buchanan said, I'd already been thinking about that, so here was a couch, and there was a chair, and here was a table. And then he said, now I want you to look at your house and remember the people who first taught you to believe. In what room, what time, and how did the people who supposedly loved you better than anybody else in the world teach you how to believe? If you didn't have that, it's not too late for you. If you're hungry and you're thirsty, listen to number three. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord. The word for return is sub in Hebrew, and it's a word we often translate repent. Rabbi Zimmerman reminded us just a year ago when he was our Barton Clinton Gordy presenter that in Hebrew it means literally to turn or return. You came from God. Have you ever come back to God? Ever returned? Rabbi Gunter Plaut says this text is usually read in the synagogues the Friday night before Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, the end of a year, the beginning of a new year that ushers in ten days of repentance. Ten days for Jews to stop and ask, what might I have done last year that would have been good to do and I didn't get it done. What wrong did I do that I'm really sorry I did? Ten days. And then you come back to Yom Kippur and you ask the priest in the old days to go into the Holy of Holies and ask God Almighty if he would be willing to move from the seat of judgment to the seat of mercy. It's appropriate at the synagogue the Friday night before the ten days of repentance begin. It's appropriate in Christendom right in the middle of Lent. Let the wicked, the unrighteous, forsake their ways and return to the Lord. He will pardon. Last Sunday night, I went to see the basketball games at the BOK. Hadn't seen any of them at the BOK on Friday. I was rooting for our Big 12 teams. I rooted for Texas, lost that one. Rooted for Kansas, won that one. As I was sitting in the game between Kansas and Illinois, we were near the Illinois section. Not very many of them there. The Illinois people were there and had on their orange and blue their band was right down just to the right of us. Their cheerleaders spent most of the evening right down in that same corner. And I really wondered if any of those students knew Dr. Peter Frischke. Dr. Peter Frischke is a professor at the University of Illinois. He's a German-American who's been deeply troubled about how his people could have allowed Nazism to come to Germany 
how the Nazis could have killed six and a half million Jews and plunged the whole world into a war. How? He's made numerous trips back to Germany, and on one of those trips in a library, he found a diary. A diary of a fellow named Franz Gull. You don't know that name. I didn't know that name either. Dr. Frischka didn't know that name. Turns out Franz Gull was virtually nobody. He was born in 1899 in Berlin. He was 15 years old when World War I began. By the time that war was over, he was 19. He was subject to draft into the German army. He was rejected for some physical reason. He doesn't tell you what that was. But Dr. Frischke calls Franz Gull a graphomaniac, a guy who just has to write everything down. He lived 84 years, and he wrote a 23-volume diary. He lived through all those turbulent years. Dr. Fritzka's book is called The Turbulent Years of Franz Gould. World War I, the terrible punishments inflicted on the Germans at the end of that war that destroyed their economy, that caused the Deutsche Mark to be worth a loaf of bread one day, two Deutsche Marks for a loaf of bread the next day, four the next, eight the next, 16 Deutsche Marks the next day. And then a guy that could make a speech named Adolf Hitler started making lots of speeches and telling his people it was all somebody else's fault. It was all somebody else's fault. Couldn't have been the Germans' fault. Hold up your heads. You're the greatest people on the planet. And they bought it. Franz Gould riding along. He mentions girls that interested him, but he never married one. He had menial jobs. He was a clerk at times, a night watchman at others. Then he went back to his apartment and he wrote. He wrote about Kristallnacht. He was around that night that Jewish businesses were first destroyed en masse, that synagogues were broken into, beautiful stained glass, broken synagogues burned. He wrote it in his diary. The invasion of Poland, entry of the Allies into the war, end of the war. He just kept living, kept writing. All those years, 84 years, and then right at the end, this is what he wrote. My life bore no fruit. I lived 84 years and idled away my time. Come back. Come back to the Lord. Number four. Notice these verbs. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk. Come to me. Come to the waters. Seek the Lord. Call upon him. There's a new biography out of Richard Brooks called Tough as Nails. When I looked up at the chapel choir at 8.30, I said, none of you knows Richard Brooks, and probably none of you knows that name, unless you're a real movie buff who not only knows movie stars, but knows screenwriters and directors. 
If that be the case, then at least you'll remember some of the work of Richard Brooks, The Blackboard Jungle. He wrote it and directed it. Elmer Gantry, he wrote the screenplay and directed it. In Cold Blood, he wrote the screenplay and directed it, and any number of others. When he died in his 80s, he asked that on his tombstone be the name and the dates and simply first comes the word. The biographer believes he got that idea from John Houston, that when Richard Brooks was a younger man, he came under the influence of John Houston. He co-wrote Key Largo with John Houston, which John Houston directed. And listen carefully when Houston said, the thing that makes great movies, great stories. You've got to have a great story to make a great movie. And when you've written a great story, don't turn it over to somebody else. Direct it yourself. It's the only way you have control. Therefore, this Richard Brooks, who was tough as nails, that's the name of the biography, really tough to get what he wanted down in film, thought, first comes the word. Maybe not. Because Richard Brooks wasn't his name. It's the name he took. It wasn't his name. He was a poor little Russian Jew. Well, he was born in this country, but his mother and father had just arrived. Think Fiddler on the Roof. Think Tevye. Think Tevye's first son-in-law. That poor tailor, he talked about. That poor tailor. Why does she want to marry that poor tailor? She could have done better. Richard Brooks' father was a poor tailor in a small town in Russia. 1908, he and his wife managed to get out. They landed in New York, made their way inland just as far as Philadelphia, and in 1912, their son was born. Is it possible that what he chose for his tombstone he first heard in the synagogue on Friday night. First comes the word. And you and I have heard, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us so that those who believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 